Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This is a special local politics edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. There's less than a week left before the crowded Boston City Council races preliminary election on September 24th. Last week on Under the Radar, we aired the first of two shows dedicated to this crucial election featuring candidates from Boston City Council's District 5 seat. This week, we are joined at our satellite studio here at the Boston Public Library by the candidates for Boston City Council's 8th District. The District 8 includes the neighborhoods of Back Bay, Beacon Hill, Fenway, Kenmore, Mission Hill, Audubon, and West End. The candidates are divided into two groups. Before the show, they pull names in a blind drawing to determine the order. First up, our first three candidates are Jennifer Nassour. She's a longtime Boston resident currently living in Back Bay. Jennifer Nassour is an attorney and the CEO of the nonpartisan Women's Representation Coalition, Reflect Us. She served as former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party. This is her first time running for public office. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Kelly. Next up, Kenzie Bach, lifelong Boston resident and affordable housing expert and community leader. Kenzie Bach is currently the senior advisor for policy and planning at the Boston Housing Authority and the former chair of Boston's Ward 5 Democratic Committee. She served as budget director for Boston City Councilor Anissa Esaya B. George. She is also a first-time candidate. Hello, Kenzie. Thanks so much for having us. I'm glad to have you. And last but not least, of course, Eileen Vincent, a mediator, negotiator, and longtime activist for social and environmental justice and the LGBTQ community. Eileen Vincent was formerly the director of research and academic partnerships at Education First and the youngest president of the downtown Boston Rotary Club. This is her first time running for public office. Welcome, Eileen. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have all of you. As it happens, I took a look at your main issues or some of the bigger ones that want to get you give you a chance to discuss here and one of them is public school mm. actually mm. other people may not know there is no public school in your district and it's an issue for all of you but I wanted to frame it this way because the state house just released uh, information and made the announcement about the 1.5 billion seven-year education bill that's been you know months in the making years in the making some would say and the essence of it is that there's more money that will be allocated to public schools and those with the greatest need will get the most. Mm -hmm. So I wanted you to think about that, this most recent happening, because sitting on the uh, city council, you each will mm. be having to deal with the resources that come from this bill mm -hmm. and what happens in your districts. But I'll start with you, Ellen, mm -hmm. uh, because there is no school mm -hmm. <laughs> in your district, mm -hmm. um, but you have very strong feelings about universal pre-K, for example, and public yep. education. No, I sure do. So I was a uh, public school student for my entire education, so I know how important that is. And my concern in education in Boston is I see a huge gap between the decision makers and the people affected by those decisions. So for an example, I'm a huge proponent of an elected school board. 
I understand why we had an appointed school board and it was very important during desegregation. But right now we're not having the actual family population of Boston being represented there. And I think that's part of the reason that we haven't yet implemented universal pre-K fully because the people making those decisions aren't the ones whose lives would be positively changed by universal pre-K. When I am knocking doors all over the city and in particular in Fenway and in Mission Hill, when I mention the idea of universal pre-K, people's eyes light up because that's gonna make a huge difference not only for their child, but also for them. That's an extra year where parents, mom and dad, can go back to work sooner and actually move their family up in socioeconomic status. All right, uh, Kenzie Buck, uh, your feelings about both what this bill could do and, and also, I know you're a supporter of Universal Pre-K as well. Yes. Yes, very excited about the news about the bill. Um, I've been honored to earn the endorsement of Sonia Chang-Diaz, and I think you know, that bill is just it's such an example of so many years of hard policy work by folks led by her up at the State House. And to me, you know, one of the, there's been a couple of ways that I've touched the school budget up to now. One was when I was working for ANISA, looking at a line by line level and just seeing the inequities that persist between our different schools and what they're able to offer. Um, and then actually at the housing authority, working a lot around how do we support homeless kids. I mean, when you talk about the kids with the greatest needs, somebody for whom school instead of home becomes the home base, just you need so many more resources to make it possible for kids to flourish and learn in that situation. And Boston, unfortunately, is a real hub for that. And so I'm really excited about this news. I absolutely share Ellen's feeling about universal pre-K being, it's one of the things that we know that kids who go to BPSs, early ed programs, they're closing the opportunity gap at much higher levels, even by third grade and beyond. So excited to see it roll out uh, universally and particularly excited because I think in terms of that longing for a school that the districts had for a long time, one of the opportunities to build towards that is suddenly we have to cite a lot more early education seats around the city. So let's put some of those early education classrooms here in the district. I think that you know the back and forth about if you build it, will they come on a public school in the district? I think the reality is we all see lots of young families that end up moving away and that if we had early education classrooms for that first year or two, it would be a way to keep them here, to demonstrate the need, and then to move towards a, a, a master plan integrated with Build BPS that allows us to have more seats in the district. Okay. Same question to you, Jennifer, and I know you're the only parent in the entire candidate group, so perhaps this even has a more intimate feeling for you. Yeah, it does. I mean, I have one in high school, one in middle school, and one in elementary school, so it definitely is near and dear to my heart. Like Ellen, I was a public school kid. I even went to public college. So for me, public education is really important, and I think that we're failing our kids. There is a school in the district, an elementary school in the district, and that's the Tobin over in Mission Hill. And according to parents whose kids have gone through there and go there, number one, it's a level four school, which means it's in risk of receivership by the state. But number two, the toilets there are made for pre-K kids. We need to spend more money on facilities. So in Boston right now, we spend $18,000 per teacher more than we do in the suburban schools, and the suburban schools are flourishing. So we need to figure out how to rework that budget a little bit to make sure that our kids are not going to school with mice that have, you know, schools that are in good condition, that have facilities that are working for them, number one. Number two, like my fellow colleagues over here, I'm absolutely in favor of universal pre-K. I think that early education is really the way to go. The only way to make sure that kids are getting where they need to go later on in life and through their education is to make sure that 
our youngest students are being educated. So three, four years old, get them in the classroom and let them start learning at that point. So I think we have a lot that we could be doing and making sure that all of our students throughout the city, and even though we don't have really any except for one elementary school in this neighborhood, make sure that we are making all of our schools good because we have a lot of kids, especially over here, that want to go to the Elliott School, and that's great, but why aren't all, all of our schools like the Elliott School? Let me just uh, quickly ask each of you, many of you spoke about wanting to have another school in the, in the district. Is that a sense that you're getting from the folks who live in your district that they very much want a school? So, yes. I mean, yes, everyone would love a school in the district, but I think, you know, we're, you run up against budgetary concerns, right? So if we have some schools that are failing to take money away from schools that should have investments in them, in the facilities and in the education of our young students, I don't know if it's, it's budgetarily wise to say, yeah, we're going to take millions of dollars, plus it doesn't come up today. It's going to take you know, seven to ten years to get that up. I think that there are many other things that we could look at to start producing some classrooms, um, micro schools popping up a lot. That's a good, you know, good way to go and something to think about. It would be great. Everyone would love a, mm -hmm. a district school here. Um, Kenzie? Yeah, so there's particular data from BPS about the kind of mismatch in the number of kids um, at that school entrance year in particularly the Upper Back Bay and Fenway area versus the number of seats that are w within some distance. And, you know, I should say because of the way that they changed the school assignment system a few years ago, most kids in that first year at BPS are going to somewhere relatively close to where they live. And so I think that, you know, as BPS looks at system-wide how we locate seats in the midst of addressing within a context of the whole capital plan, how we locate seats near where families are in the city. This is not the only part of the city that is experiencing that mismatch, but it is one of them. You've got to be, from a budgetary perspective, thinking about what's the best, most cost-effective opportunity. But there are, you know, a group at Fenway, CDC, has looked at the fact that there's some space up in existing BPS facilities there that might be usable. There's the old Winshell School down in the West End, and that what's going to happen to that building is currently up for debate and discussion with MGH and their latest stage. So it sounds like plan. you're saying look at other options so potentially. There, no, I'm saying is that I think that even within budgetary constraints, there may be opportunities in the near okay. future. All right. Eileen? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot and one of the reasons I was motivated to run is my wife and I are 30 and 34 respectively. And so, you know, everybody's having children as we discuss whether to do it. One of the issues is could we live in the city if we did that? So obviously housing is a huge part of that but so too is a school system. And we feel really strongly about sending our kids to public school, so that's what we would wanna do. The problem is a lot of people are moving out because they don't see that as an option. And so what we're seeing you know, all over Boston is transients, right? So young folks moving in and then moving out, um, people that are just using the city as an investment property. So there's a lot we have to do in housing, but I think part of it is also having really strong local schools so that people actually wanna set down roots. And I see that really heavily in the Back Bay Fenway and folks in the West End are really clamoring for that as well. All right, well, you transition to our next topic because, which is, um, well, it's, ha it's, it's actually affordable housing, so maybe mm -hmm. not. This is something that each of you are being faced with, and I would say that the overarching sentiment seems to be that there's just not a way of, at this moment, looking strategically, as you said, Jennifer, about how much development and where it should be. People who are living in the, in the district are thinking, what's happening? We're being overtaken, and, and yet I have no place to live. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that happens. I mean, I started out living in Charlestown. I lived there for 10 years, and, you know, it went from not being the most desirable place to live, and when I moved, it was the most desirable place to live, um, and see all the building that has gone on. You know, I think that everything is a compromise, and government would work a lot better if we had more compromise, and we put all the stakeholders at the table, and that is our neighborhood associations, our abutters, our builders and developers, and everyone, I mean, we have a beautiful city and we need to keep the character of our city. We also want to, as Ellen said, we want to keep people here. We don't want people racing out to the suburbs or even worse, leaving the Commonwealth and moving down to North Carolina. So do you have a sense that it's too much development? I wouldn't say it's too much development. I think that we need more neighborhood buy-in into all the development that goes on and make sure that we are making the right decisions. So when we have buildings that are owner unoccupied and they're being rented out as Airbnb, I think that that's a problem. And that is a building management problem and that is a owner problem, right? So I think that we need to have better laws around that. I think in rental buildings, we have a bunch of them in the West End, that these rental buildings, we've heard from various people in those buildings that the management companies are using open units as Airbnbs because they make more money off of that, which is driving up the cost for other people. So I think that there's other ways to look at it. I think workforce housing is a really good thing. I think micro units are a really good thing. I think we want to make sure that there's enough out there so that way people have a place to live. And look, a 23-year-old doesn't necessarily want a 4,000 square foot condo to live in. 23-year-old is happy with, you know, 400 square feet. Um, and so how can we keep people in the city near their jobs? All right. Um, Kenzie, you uh, work with the, with, with the housing authority. So what, what kind of practice eye do you bring to this? And I also know that, interestingly, you teach a, a course at Harvard called Justice in Housings, and we're talking about affordable housing. Yes, I'm in this race really because I have a passion about the affordability of the city. And to me, it's existential if we lose. The city is meant to be a place for people from all walks of life. And it has. And these communities we love have been built up by people of all incomes. I do think there are cities internationally. I mean, we look at London, Vancouver, San Francisco. We can see what it looks like when you start going down the road of having your housing stock become primarily about investment capital. And I don't think Boston should go down that road. I think there's a bunch of interventions that we can make. And I should say, you know, you mentioned my class that I teach at Harvard. It's interesting. I teach it primarily to students who staff the student-run homeless shelters, both Y to Y, which works primarily with LGBT youth, and then Harvard Square Homeless Shelter, which is a more traditional homeless shelter. And these students come into this class saying, we've seen the bottom of our housing system, and it doesn't work. This is broken, and shelter alone is not the solution. And I think what we've done, but never enough scale, is actually what does work is to anchor in place opportunities in our vibrant communities for people from lower incomes to live. And that takes the shape of you know, historically public housing. And the federal government's backed away from its commitment there. But we still have all of this public housing in Boston that we need to maintain. We've got 40,000 families on the wait list. And it's one of our main resources for housing families out of homelessness. So that's what I've been working on at the VHA is preserving that. And we've got $30 million in the city capital budget for the first time this year for preservation of public housing, which we should be clear is the city stepping up when the federal government's stepping back, which isn't how it should be, um, but it's how it must be. But and a lot then, of people are really just mad about the luxury housing seeming to suck up everything and there's yes. no space for affordable housing. And that's why I think we have to be doing a lot more to look at land trusts, cooperative housing, which actually we have some great flourishing examples of in the Fenway in this district, 
both with public land and other places where we can say, how do we create housing that's a bit more detached from the speculative market um, going forward? Because that's when you ask how have people of more moderate means stayed in some of these neighborhoods that we're running represent, it's through those kinds of programs in the past. And also affordable home ownership opportunities, which is something I've been working on with Maha and uh, that are some of the best stories that I hear in Mission Hill and elsewhere are people who manage to buy a home in an affordable home ownership program 10 years, 20 years ago. We have to make more of that happen. Yeah, because you can't find it now, let me just say. No. <laughs> Ellen, what, what do you say? Yeah, so this is how I got involved in running for office. I never in a million years thought I would, but I live in the Fenway area and we have all those luxury apartments going up at a time when we have you know, a housing crisis. And so like any good activist, I started going to meetings you know, to protest with community groups to try to keep our community inclusive and diverse. And we got completely steamrolled by the developers. And to make matters worse, the Boston Planning and Development Authority, BPDA, BRA, just sat there and took notes. They didn't fight for us. And I realized then that you know working on the outside of the system wasn't going to be enough. Nobody understood the crisis that we're in. And I've seen the pain of eviction and displacement firsthand. I got my start in activism actually working as a mediator in small claims court between landlords and tenants to help prevent evictions. And I saw that when you get evicted, it destroys your future employment opportunities. You can't get housing. It's totally life altering. And it's a really real feeling. And so I think that's why we need to stop haggling with developers who think of every percent of affordable housing as a number versus as a real human life. And so that's why I'm advocating for, in the long term, 25% on-site and 30% off-site affordable housing. I also want to revisit the Jim Brooks Stabilization Act that was meant to help protect tenants, um, and which died, but I would love to reintroduce that. And in the short term, we just need to stabilize the housing market before people get pushed out and they're never gonna come back. What we can have in Boston is a vibrant community with people of all different stripes and ages and, and backgrounds. And what I'm afraid is that we're gonna have an increasingly speculative market. You know, People are holding their capital here in these investment properties and everybody else is getting pushed out. And the problem is once we lose that, we can't get it back. And so I would, I know it's so controversial, but I would revisit opening the conversation on rent control in certain markets because I'm, I'm terrified about losing that community and not getting it back. And so that's, you know, I'm out here, I'm fighting, and I'm, I'm coming in as an outsider and as an advocate because I just see this as so urgent and as so human, and I'm afraid that we're not thinking about it that way. Okay. Um, let's move on to traffic, which apparently has bubbled up to be a mm -hmm. huge issue in your district, mm -hmm. um, which then, of course, encompasses transportation. There are more issues there than just the MBTA and beating up on it, though you're welcome to do so <laughs> <laughs> at this table. <laughs> Ellen, I'll start with you. Uh, let's talk about traffic and transportation sure, in the district sure, sure. and what you want to do to improve that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think about the most when I'm thinking about running is, again, the huge disconnect between decision makers and those affected. And nowhere to me was this more observant than in the hearings this February to push back on the T increase. And I'm sure you reported on it that you were there and you saw you know, people from all different backgrounds protesting and the decision makers who were predominantly white, older, and male. And what I heard them say time and again is the 6% fare increase is no big deal. Nobody will notice it. It's pennies on the dollar. And what I hear when I say that to people in our district, myself included, is BS, to be polite, right? Like people are out outraged. They don't understand that that's what people can spend on groceries or on rent, and now they can't spend it on that anymore. And so we need people who are elected who understand that that's a real thing. And so I think as a city grows uh, and we get more and more people, we need to A, invest in public transportation. It's an equity issue. It's also a climate justice issue. Um, and we also need to think about how we commute in the city in general, right? So one of the most controversial things that we hear about on the doors every day is bike lanes. I know you ladies hear that all the time too. 
Bikers hate cars, cars hate bikers, pedestrians hate everybody. And the reason is the system sets them up to fail. They're all kind of you know, in the same spaces. And so in my mind, we need to take a step back and look at the arteries that are going through our city, where are bikers most likely to commute through and actually make separated bike lanes. That way the bikes are out of the road and not affecting drivers. They're also off the sidewalks and they're not you know, hurting pedestrians, which is super scary. To me, we have to look at the whole system, think about pedestrians, think about drivers, think about bikers, and for God's sake, invest in public transportation. Okay, Kenzie. Definitely second. A lot of what Alain just said. You know, I think when we talk about the public transportation, there's the state level investment in the T. But one of the ways that we can directly on the city council, like contribute on that front is thinking about rapid bus lanes in the city um, and making the space in our streets. I mean, I think often about the fact that, you know, the 39 bus runs in the district. And often you can look at a full 39 bus that's stopped in traffic, just like inching along. And you could zoom out and look five blocks up and five blocks down Huntington Ave, and there's more people in that bus than there are in the cars, right, for the 10 blocks on either side. And we just, we have to do our transportation planning acknowledging that reality. And I think that would incentivize people to get on the bus, right? And I think what's interesting, we're gonna have an interesting opportunity. It's, you know, silver lining kind of opportunity, but the T is gonna be doing these major shutdowns of the red and orange line through the fall and winter, which are gonna really affect our commuters. We can force all the commuters onto buses that then inch through traffic in that way and cause a lot of people to decide to give up on taking the T into work. Or we can say, isn't this a great opportunity to pilot what it would be like to really make those replacement buses run like rapid buses? And, you know, that was the idea and the promise behind the silver line. It hasn't yet come to fruition um, for the parts where it's above ground. But I think, you know, sometimes people say, oh, the MBTA is a state issue. Well, actually, that infrastructure is something that we can directly work on at the city level. I totally agree with bike lanes. We've got to have a joined up system because a great separated bike lane that then drops you off into a really dangerous intersection is not a solution to anything. It's not, and it's not a solution for bikers or pedestrians or cars. Um, and we've had a number of really unfortunate, fatal um, mm, yes. crashes in this district, mm-hmm. right along Calm Ave, out in Fenway. Mm-hmm. So it's just not something we're talking about vision zero in the city. It's just not something that we can continue to countenance. This is something that will have to be decided at the state level. But I think from Boston, we need to be talking about the need to look at congestion charging. Yeah. I mean, we half the tailpipes that are in the city. I think that's going to be coming up as a real thing. Yeah. yeah. And half the tailpipes in the city every day are yeah. from out, mm-hmm. of, out of town. And I mean, we have to make it more attractive for people to take public transit as an alternative, but it's got to be part of the conversation. And there's a public health aspect to that too. And for our, for the folks in our district. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Jennifer. I think transportation is really important and that's something that we have to work on in this district. Um, you know, what, one of the other issues, though, that I see as someone who is on foot every single day is that we need to do something about our traffic lights and our walk signals. Because right over here is a perfect example of an area, and right down there on Dartmouth Street is a perfect example of an area where there is so much traffic and congestion because we have left on you know, green light, make a left, but it's also a walk sign. And so cars don't go through, people are aggravated, traffic builds up. Over here on Boylston and Dartmouth, that traffic builds up past Exeter Street, everyone is frustrated. And so if we are able to have more four-way walk signs, where cars have to wait an extra 30 seconds or 60 seconds, pedestrians could get through safely, and then cars can go, it will be a much smoother flow of traffic. I also think that we need more cameras and more police officers throughout the district monitoring our traffic because we have people who are blocking the so-called box 
We have people who are stopping in crosswalks. We have people who, I mean, are just really incredibly disrespectful drivers. And what happens is you have a, we don't have a shared universe of pedestrians, bicycles, and cars. Everyone wants to have the right of way. And so when you're blocking a crosswalk, there's a bicycle that's going around, there's a pedestrian going around, there's a kid on a scooter going around, there's an elderly person going around. And so we, we have, as a city, have to do a much better job at managing what is here. So it's, it's great to say we're going to work on transportation, rapid bus lanes, and MBTA, but that's a long-term plan, and we have to work on that. But in the near term, we need to prevent fatalities which is one of the parts that result in too much traffic and the traffic jams that we have. Okay. That's my guest, Jennifer Nassour. She, along with Kenzie Bach and Elaine Vincent, are all candidates uh, for the District 8 uh, of the Boston City Council. Uh, the seat now held by Josh Zakem, he's retiring from that seat. I would like each of you to pick an issue that we've not discussed, one of the big ones that I know in your district, that you think that you could have a unique uh, ability to tweak or um, outright create if you were to win. Helen? To me, it's a bigger issue of listening first. I think that's that's really important. A couple of weeks ago, I, something happened to me that was reported in the Globe. I was knocking doors, door opened, um, gentleman answered, and I asked if I could earn his vote, and he said, yeah, if no one more attractive than you comes along. And that's happened to everybody that's, that's been running on this race. You know, you just get kind of disrespected and put down. And so for whatever reason that day, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I sat in a stairway and I thought to myself, you know, why am I doing this? What's the point? What kept coming to me was all of the people in the district and the individual stories, right? The numbers weren't it, but I was thinking about Mary, who's about five feet tall and 80-something years old, and for whom two high sidewalks that weren't well thought of are called walls for her, because she literally can't get around them. And I'm thinking about Jerry that sat on his front porch every day for 30 years until one in the morning watching over his street so that gangs don't take over. And I'm thinking about Monica, who sends her kids to our public school, but is terrified because they don't have the appropriate resources that they need for their special needs. And so I was thinking about all of those issues. And I think if we want to take dramatic action in our city to make sure that we are a community, that we are vibrant, and that it's not just a collection of streets, we need to start thinking about this as real stories, real people, and taking their perspectives and their ideas in to local government. It's not for me to be an expert and say, I have all the answers. I never could. Everybody has different life experiences. But it's up to me to show up every single day and listen hard. And so I think, you know, not having those hearings at a time when nobody can come is really important. Making sure that we don't just have, you know, coffee hours once a week, 11 a.m. in some random shop. Like, I think that's disrespectful. I think we need every three months a big town hall in every district. People can bring whatever questions they have, right? It's not just about me saying, this is the issue I'm focusing on. Only talk to me about this. No, you tell me. <laughs> what do you care about? And how can I fight for you? How can I use this role as an elected organizer every single day to represent you and bring your voice into local government? Okay, thank you. Kenzie. I think, you know, we're running for a city council seat that comes up every two years, right? But one of the tricky things is that some of the issues we've talked about today, affordability, education, transportation, and certainly climate change, require long-term thinking, right? Where you can't be just thinking, what are we doing in the next 18 months so that then I can run for re-election? It's got to be, what are we doing that's going to shape the future of the city in 10 years, in 20, and 30? And I think one of the levers on that that's really important is how we use public land and public assets. I mean, when I think about whether it's climate resiliency, which this is an area that if the Charles River Dam were ever to break, much of our district would be flooded. There's a real opportunity, and you know, we've tried to do it with thinking about the long-term future of public housing, of thinking about 
how do we take our public land and not just view it as maybe a potential cash cow in the short term, but a real way of serving some of these like mission purposes of the city, like citing more affordable housing, creating climate resilient buffers that are parks that people can use, that kind of thing. And that's something I'm really passionate about is sort of bringing that kind of long-term thinking to the city council. I think also that often when you face those long-term challenges, it's very overwhelming and it can be easy for us to you know, get discouraged or fatalistic. And I think one of the key roles, and it relates to what Ellen said about being an elected organizer, like one of the key roles for a councilor is to believe in and support the power of collective action. And I really saw that in 2016 with the Community Preservation Act campaign, which a bunch of us just said there is not enough money for affordable housing. Which we should say you, you helped create. And, I was, and yes, pass. very yes. involved in that. Yeah. And so I think that kind of thing, looking at the places where we can't get to the solutions we need on our current course and saying, well, then I think we need to push through some paper walls and change the game. I think that's a really important perspective to bring to the council. Okay, Jennifer. Like Ellen, for me, it's all about listening. When I was a kid, my dad died of a massive heart attack and I called 911 and wanted to get an ambulance. I was 10 years old and the operator said, I'm sorry, sweetheart, you have to put your mommy on the phone. And so at nearly 48 years old, I feel like I'm really sick of being called sweetheart Mm. and I'm sick of people not listening to me. I know what it's like to be voiceless. I want to listen to other people and help be their voice and be their advocate in public office. And I think everyone needs an advocate. Everyone needs someone who's going to listen to them and who's gonna fight for them. And I've had to fight my entire life, whether it was fighting for where I was when I was a kid and my dad died, my brother had Tourette's syndrome, fighting doctors to pay attention to him in the early 80s when no one knew what it was. My brother was a addict and fighting for him in and out of institutions that he was in and fighting to get to where I am today. And so I understand everyone has a different perspective. Everyone has different life experiences and I want to be there for all of them. Okay. I'd like each of you to uh, give me one sentence, which really encapsulates, you know, the essence of who you are and, you know, why you're doing this, just so that people have a sense. You know, you all have websites, but this is the time for them to hear from you, you know, how you see yourself uh, in this race uh, and perhaps on the city council. I'm in the race as a passionate housing advocate, as someone who thinks that, you know, everything that we do to make our community better and more vibrant, bring better services, like improve the fabric, only counts if we keep Bostonians in Boston and really acknowledge that, you know, claims of both community and justice require that the the people who have made our city so wonderful are part of its future going forward. I've had experience bringing groups of people together and and being part of, you know, how do we change a situation um, and I think been able to be effective at the city level. Uh, and I think, you know, we're in, we're in such an urgent window uh, on so many fronts. And it's this funny combination of its urgency where we need to act now in the moment and we also have to act with that long-term lens, so. Ellen? <laughs> so the experiences that I've had that I think are most relevant, three years ago, I almost died in an ATV accident, bad injuries to my neck, back and, and brain, and had to really fight my way back from that. And it took a lot of the fear out of me, realizing what was important and that I wasn't afraid to fight for it. And so when I'm thinking about what I want to do this city council, it's, you know, fight, like we say, with the fierce urgency of now, without fear, with knowing, you know, what's real in your heart. So the second thing is I'm an out, proud lesbian woman, married. And it's important to me to speak that truth every single day. Because if people don't know that I'm going to speak my truth when I'm talking about me, how can they possibly tell, you know, trust that I'm going to speak the truth when I'm talking about what they're going for? And finally, as a mediator, like everybody's here has said, 
it's time to listen first. It's time to pay attention, listen, figure out what matters to people, and then bring that. Okay, Jennifer. As a member of the sandwich generation, <laughs> where I have to look forward for my kids and I have to look forward for my mother, I am looking multi-generationally at where our city is and where we should be going and where I'd like to see it be. And so I come in this from a perspective of an attorney who is used to fighting. I am looking at it as a mom who has to teach my kids to ride bikes and watch bicyclists almost mow them down and ride in our public spaces that they shouldn't be riding in. I look at it from a mom who wanted to send their kids to public school, but we don't have that access. Um, I look at it from the perspective of a daughter who watches my aging mother walk slower and slower across the crosswalks and not have enough time. And so for me, I want to be the advocate and I want to be the voice of everyone out there in the district. The city council is now not where it used to be years ago mm. in terms of makeup, um, look at all of you, and also <laughs> in terms of its power now. Mm -hmm. um, lot, for a long time, people said, no power. You, you guys just sit there and sort of, mm. you know, yep. ho hold uh, the mayor's hand. But that's all changed. Are, do you feel the weight of that? Or do you believe that, mm -hmm. first of all, that, mm -hmm. that now the city council is really a different kind of organization that, and that you would be part of that change. I think Ayanna mm. Presley and Michelle Wu really led the way there. I wouldn't have run for the city council 10 years ago. A, I was 20 years old. <laughs> but also, it was, just, it was a different place. And I think I, I want to use it as an elected organizer. I think that's the path that they paved. We have to make sure that we're hearing everybody's voices. And no matter who our mayor is, that's just one perspective in one part of the city. We need to work together to represent all our different uh, populations. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, definitely part of what's so inspiring about running for this is knowing that you're going to be joining a critical mass of folks who really you know want to think seriously about policy in the city um, a lot of progressive women mm -hmm. um, that's an exciting dynamic and it's something where what i've seen you know, I was Anissa Sabi George, one of the at-large counselors, budget director, and uh, she came in her first year. We did this in-depth budget analysis, and she showed up at every one of 33 hearings with all these questions, and everyone said, like, wait, what? that was a lot more detailed than we've done before. But then what was interesting was seeing the next year a bunch of other council offices mm -hmm. decide to do something similar, and it, it just taught me how what, we can just raise our ambitions about mm -hmm. what the body can do, and I okay. think it can really rise to meet them. All right. Jennifer? I, maybe I'm a little bit more cynical um, because I've been kicking around a little bit longer, but okay. I mean, the, the city council has the power that it has, and the mayor's office has by charter much of the power. I mean, it has the budgetary power. And so the city council needs to be someone who could work with the mayor and be able to negotiate with the mayor and sit down with the mayor and have a good conversation and bring back what is important in the district. So it's not what's going on in someone else's district. Dis district counselors are responsible for their district. And so if we're looking at the big picture of where we're going and know we're gonna run for Congress because Ayanna Presley did, then I think we're missing the boat. I think this is not about power. This is about community. And that's what this role is. Thank you all very much for joining me. Um, coming up, we are going to sit down with two more candidates for the Boston City Council District 8 in a continuation of the special local politics edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. But for right now, this is Jennifer Nassour, Kinsey Buck, and Elaine Vincent, and we appreciate um, their commentary. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special local politics edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We just spoke with three of the five candidates running for the Boston City Council District 8 seat, which covers Back Bay, Beacon Hill, Fenway, Kenmore, Mission Hill, Audubon, and the West End. And now we'll hear from the final two candidates in the race who are joining us here at our satellite studio at the Boston Public Library. And again, before the show, they pull names in a blind drawing to determine the order. So our two new candidates are, sitting to my immediate right, Montez Haywood. He is a West End resident and prosecutor. Montez is currently the assistant district attorney in the Suffolk County Attorney's Office and a faculty member at Harvard Law School's Trial Advocacy Workshop. This is his first time running for public office. Hello. Hello. And next to him is Kristen Mobilia. She's a community organizer, advocate, and longtime Boston resident. Uh, Kristen is currently vice president of finance and human resources at Video Link LLC, a Boston area broadcast and video production firm, and trustee of the Lincoln Hills Condo Association. Kristen also served as president and board member of the city's historic Fenway Victory Gardens. She ran for the District 8 seat against retiring, now retiring, city councilor Josh uh, Zakem in 2017, and she's the only candidate in the District 8 race who's run for office before. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, I want to start off with uh, f- uh, with you two with the same question I asked of uh, the last three candidates, and that is uh, your response to this announcement about this $1.5 billion seven-year education bill. It has to go through the process, but the House and the Senate have come to a consensus about it, and overall, uh, there are monies now for uh, all of the schools with ones in most need getting the most. The school issue has been a big one for you candidates, and I know that, Montez, you are thinking that there ought to be other schools built in the district, and Kristen, you're thinking maybe there should be other services and not necessarily a school. So I'll let you both explain uh, what you mean in, in reference to this bill. Is this how you would hope to see some of these funds distributed in your district? I'm actually super excited. My district is in need of a school like um, no one's business. These, the downtown neighborhoods are thriving. There are a bunch of people with children. There are people who, who can afford to live in this neighborhood and live in the downtown section of the city. However, they can't afford to send their kids to a private school. As a result, we're losing the, the brain drain. We're losing of the people who fall in love with the city and fall in love with this place is just almost un- unmeasurable at this point. You can walk through the West End, you can walk through any, the Beacon Hill, Back Bay, Fenway, and look at the number of baby carriages and the individuals who are living in our city and those that want to stay, but they need a place to send their child. It makes no sense to put a kid on a bus and send them across the city for an hour, losing sometimes, you know, 14, 20 hours a week purely in travel, especially for those that are youngest amongst us. It is incumbent upon us as the adults to put an education system in place that supports our children. And in so doing, we absolutely have the space to do that in the West End. The West End has been mistreated by the city in the past. We are in a position right now as we sit with the construction with Mass General to put in a elementary school. We can do so whether it's empowerment zone, innovation schools. We're ready for that school, and that money is perfect, and we're in a great place for it. Okay, uh, Kristen. Thank you. Um, I, it's correct. I definitely believe we need more services in the schools, wraparound services, uh, nurses, social workers, etc. Um, but I also believe that we do need more schools in this district uh, as well. My mother grew up in District 8. She was a public school teacher. I think I'm the only candidate who actually went through the Massachusetts public school system. 
I'm a big believer in equity and education. We talked about it at the dinner table you know, every night when we were uh, growing up. We need to figure out where those spaces can be. There's the McKinley School, which is right in the middle of the district, that is not being utilized fully. That could definitely be uh, used more as an elementary school location. You know, I've been talking a lot to parents across the district, whether it's Mission Hill, West End, or anywhere in between, um, and there's a real challenge with getting their kid into their top choice school. And the fact that there are other choices that are not desirable is a real problem. Uh, we need to make sure that we get schools at every level across the district so that they get engaged and start in the school system and stay in the school system. We have so many parents um, who I've known for a long time who now have five and six-year-olds, and they are looking to leave because their best school option is a private school in this district, and that is not a financial option. All right. Uh, let's move on to affordable housing. I'm, I'm going down the list of the, of the major issues that I know bubbled up in, in your district. Affordable housing, there's a lot of uh, consternation about the amount of development um, and people feeling as though they're squeezed out or about to be squeezed out. Um, I'll start with you, Kristen, on this. Sure. You know, I've, I've been a District 8 resident for 20 years. I've lived through this, you know, kind of slow ramping up and then this boom. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been a renter. I've been an owner. Um, I've felt the pains of both. Um, I've seen again and again as I've gone to community meetings well before I ran for office. I've been very involved in standing up and um, fighting for affordable housing, but also in how that development really fits with the community. And the BRA, which legally it's still called, I know people call it the BPDA, uh, is not been doing its job and it has too much power and is not answered answerable to anyone except for the mayor. And that's a big problem. We need our planning and development split into two agencies, and we need those agencies to report to Boston City Council as well as the mayor. That's the only way we're going to change um, the power structure in this city and how we affect our lives and how the building uh, is going on around us. Okay, Montez. Um, as it stands right now, people are absolutely being squeezed out of our city. There is too much construction that is happening right now at too much of a rapid pace. I, I sit back and I support the current bill before the legislature, the Housing Choice Act. We need to get the surrounding cities and towns to begin to build along the transit corridors to relieve some of the pressure from the downtown neighborhoods. As people live here, and as we continue to build more housing, more housing, more housing, at price points that people are already working two or three jobs to try to maintain, it's just, it's not, it's not equitable, it's not fair. The people that made this city the diamond that it is, they're the ones that are being forced out. They're the ones that are working in our hotels, our restaurants, our innkeepers. They're the ones that are having children and families that need to be able to stay. If we continue down this path, what's going to end up happening is we're going to end up in a space where either you're a student or you're imminently wealthy. I want the city to be this beautiful place that welcomed me when I moved uh, to, to, to Mass in 2001. I want that space to stay the same. I want to have neighbors. I like knowing my neighbors. I like going to the dog park. Those are the things we lose if we don't put a check on the, to the amount we're building now. Do either or both of you, uh, would you support the state or any kind of rent stabilization act policy? Uh, I would. I would um, as we stand right here, if someone is under a current lease and they're not being evicted for a proper reason, I would, there's, the government should put something in place to make sure people aren't getting these huge increases of rent of hundreds of dollars, especially in a city where these, some of these people are living on the margin. Some of us are living on the margin. And so there needs to be a cap on how much the rent can be raised year to year to year. Okay. And Kristen? 
Uh, I agree there needs to be rent stabilization. Um, I think we need to look back at why it wasn't working in terms of rent control uh, back in the 90s where there were a lot of loopholes. Some people were staying in uh, those units um, that could well afford other types of units, and so it really wasn't working uh, well. I think also landlords, some felt uh, strongly that um, they were stuck in a, a tough spot where they couldn't make improvements to their building, so we need to work things out. Maybe there are low-interest loans, et cetera, um, to kind of uh, pull a solution together, but there's no doubt that the direction that we're heading right now is not sustainable. Um, and I've talked to many uh, people who uh, have units where they've been trying to keep the rents low, mm -hmm. but with the increase in valuation of yes, homes, that pushes right. up the property tax rate. And so then they have no other choice but then to push up rents a bit. And then it's like this cycle that keeps happening, and, and it's uh, not good for anyone in the end. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about traffic, which um, I know has come up uh, from, again, the residents of District 8, which you are hoping to represent. And, and let me remind people, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with the final two candidates who are running in District 8, and they are Montez Haywood and Kristen Mobilia. So traffic. Now, Montez, as I understand it, you're looking at the climate change impact of the traffic. You're saying that things are about at the tipping point in terms of your district with regard to that. So how do you balance the real traffic needs and the climate change issues? Oh, absolutely. So we're at this point right now where we need to make real change right now in this city and across our planet to save ourselves. So we need to figure out how do we get more cars off of the road? And so the question that becomes whether or not we continue in this car-focused thought or we sit back and we look at making the necessary infrastructure upgrades with respect to the MBTA and making sure the train is running on time so people make that an option. Making sure the train is actually cheaper than driving your car into the city to encourage people to take the train, to take our buses, to use public transportation. Were you against the fare hike? Oh, completely. Mm -hmm. The fare hike was unjust, unfair, and inappropriate. The science is clear that we absolutely need to get cars off of the road if we want to begin to decarbonize our city. The science is there. So the next step of that is, what do we do to do that process? How do we encourage people to drive less? And you encourage them to drive less by decreasing the fee, making the commuter rail more accessible, making the train more reliable. And I, I would also be a proponent of beginning to look at those 13 points of entry to drive into the city. Hmm. It is a, an expansion of the Easy Pass system Putting up additional gantries is an easy thing that we can do to discourage drivers driving their cars into the city. Okay. All right, Kristen. I didn't believe it should have been a fair hike either. It was not the right timing, clearly, uh, especially with all the breakdowns on the trains, et cetera. I think that, you know, there's ideas about making the, the transit free. I'm a progressive, but I'm also practical in understanding that if you make that free, then we take away from other social programs. So we have to be really thoughtful about how that works. I do believe we should drop it to a certain point where it incents people to actually take the train. And that's really important, uh, not only for those who are here within Boston, but those who are commuting, um, because I'll take more cars off the road. You know, I'm somebody who's taken every mode of transport, um, whether it's, you know, walking, taking the T, cycling, driving, and we really need to make sure everybody starts abiding by the rules of the road. So it's not only just about cost and climate change issues, but it's safety that really needs to be worked on, because right now people are not abiding by the rules of the road. We have also um, other elements coming in from Brookline with electric scooters. We're seeing a lot of major safety issues. I was talking to uh, somebody recently, uh, Nick, who's a Vietnam vet, and he twice got hit by a bike on a sidewalk in 2013 and 14, and he's still living with extreme pain. He said he went you know, overseas to war, and he thought that's where he'd get hurt, but he got it hurt right here in the city. 
Okay. I'd like each of you to pick an issue that we've not discussed that you think that you could bring, you know, your unique talents to. For me, I would say quality of life um, issues for the constituents. So for me, it's a rubber meets the road kind of moment when whether or not you're at Blossom Court and you, uh, you have intersections that need a redesign. Those are things that I, I know and I've witnessed and things that need to be addressed and hopefully it will be addressed sooner than later, as specifically with the build at MGH, as that intersection is completely unsafe. The intersection over at 150 San Ever Street, also unsafe for walkers, unsafe for bikers. We have a protected bike lane there, but the bike lane doesn't make sense. You have bikers who are in the street, you have walkers in the bike lane, and when you look at it, logically the biker doesn't know their bike lane continues going up the wrong side of the road going up Sandover Street. It's that sort of thing that I think I would have that ability to step in and do. When it comes to making sure the lights are done, following up on 311 complaints, following up on those things that make the city run. Okay, that's Montez Hayward. Uh, Kristen Marbilia, what would you? Um, you know, all the candidates were saying the same thing. We all want safe streets, great public education, equity in education, um, we want affordable housing, the list goes on and on. We all agree. But it's really, how are we gonna get there? Uh, I think one of our biggest challenges is civic engagement. Uh, right now, about 10% of the folks uh, vote in municipal elections. And it's like, your vote counts 10 times, and you're making the decision for all sorts of people who aren't getting involved and really need to. You know, we have this great push with candidates to get involved, but what about the average citizen? Where, where are they? And so I really invite people to get more involved. I've done it uh, not only in uh, community advocacy, but also in business as well. That's what I bring to the table, getting more people involved, inviting them in. Uh, and one thing I'd love people to get involved in is um, pushing the mayor and city council to make a change and transform the BRA so it's two separate agencies. I have a petition online, check out my blog. It's really important that we give the power back to the people and that's one way we'll really do that. I want each of you to try to make a sentence, I know I'm asking a lot, uh, <laughs> that really sort of embodies what you want the message of your campaign to be and also uh, brings to bear, again, what your, your unique talents are for, for this position. I'll start with you, Kristen. I want to say that you know I'm a progressive that has practicalness to myself. I think the way we make long-lasting change is really to make smart choices. Uh, I've been a community advocate for many, many years out there working side by side with my fellow residents. And it's important that you have someone who's been working like that so you really have um, internalized you know, the needs and the issues of the community. Um, but I also, you know, backed it up with a strong business background that I've worked in multiple industries. I've worked in uh, architecture and engineering, so that helps inform me in terms of working in development. Uh, I've worked in Silicon Valley and startups, so I bring tech to the conversation. And currently I'm in corporate network broadcasting, so what we're doing today, radio and uh, video is so important in getting messaging out, but also in bringing messages in as well. We have a lot of, you know, lawyers in city council, and I think that we need more mindsets coming from the business uh, sector. I'm the one who brings the widest and deepest uh, experience in that area. But I've also called this home for you know, 20 years. I'm so invested and I'm a candidate who can say I've been here and I'm here to stay. And uh, we'll always stand up when it matters. I will challenge the status quo. I've done it again and again. I'm the only candidate who stood up and ran last time when it wasn't not an open seat. Um, I don't wait for when it's easy. I will get in there. I will stand up uh, for my community, my neighborhood, the district, uh, the entire district. It's so important we get someone who will get, get in and just stand up again when it matters. It's so important. 
because you've run before and for this district and for this role, is there just something that you've learned from that time to now and you've sort of you shifted a position on or you've honed a position on, if you will, from that time to now? I haven't uh, changed. It mm-hmm. really has always been about putting residents and community first. Um, we need to make sure that we stand up to deep pockets, um, to developers. I don't take any donations from developers. I make sure that I'm always in it and I'm biased and make sure that you know, we're, we're all here, that we want to live together and not just for the moment, that we need to like, plan and, and really commit as neighborhoods and communities. I'm seeing that fabric pull apart with the housing crisis, uh, that we're losing our neighbors, and our neighbors who fought so hard for our neighborhoods and who built it. They were those pioneers who came in and lived in neighborhoods that maybe it was a little harder to live in, and now they can't live there and they're forced out. And this is a big problem, and and these are the people who I'm fighting for um, to stay and then to also bring uh, new people in um, who couldn't uh, potentially afford to live in the city. So if anything, you're more fierce than ever on the same. So. Okay. I think so. All right, Montez Haywood, um, you're embodying your unique talents for this role. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why I believe that the voters of District 8 should choose me are is this way. It's, it is my resume and my commitment to the city versus professionally and in, in my personal life. My commitment to the city professionally over the past you know, 14 years is always obviously being a prosecutor and taking my time as a prosecutor and doing my best to ensure the safety and security of myself, my neighbors, our friends, and our loved ones. Um, over, the t- over this time period, after being, being a prosecutor, moving on and starting doing a little bit of restorative justice work, going down to Norfolk Prison and talking to some of the men who have done the unforgivable and taken a life. Sitting back and talking to those men, listening to learn from them, not listening to respond to them, and learning from them about what put them in that position taking those lessons from my professional life, uh, which also includes my volunteerism. And in my volunteerism also is my commitment to this city. My volunteerism in this case starts with um, Project Right in Grove Hall. I was on the board of Project Right for four years. My final role with Project Right was I, I was their treasurer. Um, moving beyond that with the Oasis Coalition, which focuses on food security for our, our housing fluid folks and our elderly in the West End. Moving forward with Together She Can and all the good things that Maddie Perry does, does in our city. Like, that is my commitment that has been to our city, my friends, my neighbors. And that, that commitment is the same commitment that I would bring to the city council. The promise that I have made across the district to every single person that I have met has been just this. It is impossible for us to always agree, but I will do so with transparency, honesty, and I will, every single decision that is made, I'll put myself in that position to answer the question why I made that decision and how that affects you and why I think it was the right one to make. Why did you, I, I talked to Kristen about running again and perhaps changing her position. Why did you decide to run at all? Actually, what, <laughs> and, and I'm glad you asked because legitimately I had, it was not a want to be a politician for me that put me in this space right now. And it wasn't that Josh Jacob isn't running that also put me in the seat right now. What put me in this seat right now was when I went to Norfolk Prison, I sat back and I listened to those men. I listened to why those men hurt another human being. And what I learned when I listened was a hurt person hurts another human being. That person that could get hurt could be me, it could be you, it could be my neighbor, somebody I love. And then I sat back and I thought about what in this world are we doing? And when you look at our education system and the fact that we've been failing these children in our city uh, for, for years, for decades, shamelessly. We've been failing the poor in our city 
for decades, shamelessly. We're failing our elderly right now, shamelessly. I had to run. Um, I was uh, interested in a, is something that the Globe's Adrian Walker wrote, which I think is true. It says this year's campaign features uh, the deepest and most talented field of contenders in many years. So there are people in these races that, uh, like yourselves, that um, really gave a great deal of thought before you ran and could obviously be doing many other things. But it is also true that the city council now is in a different position than it was years ago when it was, you know, thought of as kind of the silent part partner of, of the mayor. It has uh, much more power um, and uh, the ability, it seems to me, to, to, to coalesce more power and partnership um, in representing all the districts uh, and the people of Boston. How do you feel about that? Or do you agree with that statement? I guess that's what I should say, uh, that the city council is a much different body and that you would be joining a body that really is setting policy in a way that hadn't happened before. Yeah. Kristen. Uh, I think that's absolutely correct. It's a great moment, I think, to be joining Boston City Council. And I've been supporting uh, you know, what they've been working on uh, for years. Um, I think that uh, the real power comes by bringing more people to the table. And I think that's what I would work, I have been working hard at doing and I, I will continue to do, is that the more voices that we have in each neighborhood of this district, that puts more pressure in terms of making change uh, at the city level, at the state level. And so until we get more people involved, we're not gonna have that strength. I often hear from um, you know, friends of politicians, mm. et cetera, that you know, your, your neighborhood doesn't vote. Yeah. You know? so. And so let's get those voters out there on Tuesday, um, but let's keep them out there. Get, let's get them involved, showing up at community meetings. And it's not all drudgery. We have fun too. So. Okay. Quickly, Montez. Uh, so I actually do believe the city council has a myriad of powers that they have been used in the past. And I look forward to, once the district chooses me, exercising those powers. A lot of our parts of our district, specifically the West End, is urban renewal zones. We have direct, direct, the direct ability to step in and to curb some of this development across this district, holding the BPDA to its feet to the fire when they have hearings that are past the public comment period. Okay. Those things are unacceptable. All right, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Uh, Boston's preliminary city council elections will be taking place on Tuesday, September 24th. The deadline to register for the November 5th elections is October 16th. That's it for this special local politics edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take you to are with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Our intern is Melissa Rosales. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.